If you have a Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16 today, tonight, this evening. And uh, usually I tell the kids in the gym, if you don't have a Bible, go to the back and get one, but you can't do that here. So better bring your Bible. In way of a a brief introduction to this letter, uh, it's evident from verse 1, who wrote it? It says there's Simon Peter, a bond servant, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there's people arguing on both sides of who wrote it, who didn't write it, and all that stuff. Um, We can be here all night looking at at that stuff. Uh, The epistle could not have been written later than 68 AD, uh, the year of of Nero's death, because it was Nero who uh, ordered... Peter to be executed. Uh, the burning of Rome, which Nero blamed to the Christians, took place in July 19th of this 64 AD. Uh, so somewhere between 64 and 68, uh, Peter wrote uh, this letter, probably around the end of 64. It could have been around 68, but it was definitely before the death of Nero. And if it was close to his execution, then it was probably written, written from Rome because that's where he was executed. Why was he writing? Um, well, both of the letters, First uh, Peter, he wrote to the he writes to the same group of believers, and the first letter he writes for them to to fix their, fix their eyes on Christ during persecution that was coming from outside, and in the process of that, to be a witness to the world around them as they trust God with their life. And then Second Peter, that we're going to look at this uh, the, these passages, the, these verses today. Uh, was written to warn the believers against the heresy that was coming from within. So First Peter, there's the attacks coming from outside. Now we have the heresy coming from within. And, and that's the most dangerous thing. When, when the, the attacks from, from outside, we know what's coming. But when it's from within, it's very deceitful. And, and that's where the danger is at. And so he's writing this for them to, to be aware of the false teachers from within and so that they would grow spiritually and not be deceived. Uh, almost all commentators agree that the heresy that was coming into the church was an early version of Gnosticism, which uh, would come into full deception by, this, by uh, the second century AD. So uh, here, as Peter addresses the heresies that are coming, um, he does it in a form of warning. And, and the Bible is like that when it comes to what we are being warned of, the dangers of, of falling away, the dangers of of, of of false teaching, their, their warnings. And so he does that here, and he does it because of what these false teachers uh, believed and what these false teachers were teaching. Uh, they taught that the preaching of the apostles was a myth, and he, he brings that up in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 19, uh, that the Old Testament prophecy was not inspired, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Uh, that the divine judgment was idle and of no effect. And he mentioned, they mentioned that he mentions, he brings that up in, in chapter two, verses three to 10. Uh, and also they question the promise of his coming in second Peter chapter three, verses five to 10. And all of these things come against the deity of Christ and the reliability of scripture, something that has been going on from then. I mean, nothing's changed. You look at uh, at some of the churches today, and the same thing's going on. At some of the some of the Christian universities, I, I've I've known people who want to take their kids to Christian university, and and when they have their introduction, they 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 ask the person, you know, you guys believe in the infallibility of the the Word of God? And they're like, well, not really. Well, then what are you teaching? And so that's what's going on today. It's 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 nothing new. It's been going on since since uh, the beginning of time, pretty much. And when it comes to the attacks of the word against the Word of God, so. So Peter warns them about these false teachers and, and the deception that is coming to the church from within. And, and actually, at the end of, of chapter 3, at the end of the letter, he says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the ear of the wicked. And because of that, he exhorts them, he encourages them to grow in their faith. He says in 18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And the, the best defense against heresy is biblical knowledge. In, in your personal relationship with Christ, you know what you believe and why you believe in, and you're able to refute and you're able to defend the gospel. Um, and actually, in this epistle alone, the word knowledge in its different forms appears 17 times in all three chapters. So it's, it's something that comes up. 
Now, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it throughout this study. And then we'll, we'll hopefully have an answer for it, or we have an answer for it. What, what are you doing with your Christianity? Now, as we look at these three verses today, some of these things are things that we know. We, we've been coming to church for some time. We're serving in ministry. We know where the Lord has called us to, but it's, I think it's always good to have a refresher of, you know, of the Lord's like, okay, where are you at? Especially when you walk with the Lord now, you, you're, you're seeking the Lord. He's directing you. You're in the center of his will. Okay, the, is that it? You know, have you checked these things out? You're exactly where you need to be. So these are things that we need to consider. And, and Peter brings that up here in, in these verses. Now, as, as we come into this, this section of chapter 3, Peter, uh, he continues to exhort the believers as he's been doing for the other two chapters. And, and he goes into this section coming out of verse 13. And there, if you look up, he says he reminds them of their future. That is, he says, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Uh, the emphasis is on the second coming of Christ. It's been that because that's the main thing that these false teachers have been uh, denying. And, and the judgment that's going to come upon the non-believing world. Um, all of this they've been denying and they've been neglecting. And also the emphasis, too, because of that, of how the truth of, of Christ's return should affect how we live. The Lord's coming back. Then how should we be, be living our lives with that understanding? In the parable of the nobleman, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 12, therefore he, said, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called them, 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minus, and said to them, do business Till I come. And that, that phrase there, do business, can also be translated, occupy till I, count, uh, till I come. So while we're here, we need to be about the Lord's business, right? We need to be busy about the Lord. Not look busy, because that's easy to do, uh, especially if you're a workaholic. It's easy to look busy. You're always doing something. But to be busy about what the Lord has called us to do. And, and it's evident in this section of the letter uh, that Peter is being practical as he encourages uh, the believers in Asia Minor, as he exhorts the believers to live their life in a way that represents biblically uh, what we say we believe or what they say they believe. You're, you're a believer. The Lord's coming back. How does that show in your life? Um, the enemy knows that a believer who is living his or her life looking forward to the soon return of Christ, who, uh, for lack of better words, is sold out for Christ, and he's obedient to what he or, the, or she is, has been called to in their walk with God, especially when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. Uh, it, there, is, um, there is a sense of, of urgency, a sense of right priorities in, in, in obedience uh, in a life of, of a believer who lives to see Jesus soon. A person who's living with the soon return of, return of Christ, fresh in their mind, continues, hey, the Lord's coming back. He can be back for us any time. Then there are certain priorities that come with that. Uh, you don't find that in your run-of-the-mill Sunday Christian that comes, you know, at Christmas, Easter, and weddings and funerals, and some Sundays here and there just to, you know, just to check things in. Um, the Sunday Christian is preoccupied and distracted with, with the things that are temporary. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 11, he says, and do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in reverie or in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill his lust. And no more than ever... That's, that's a priority for us today because the Lord's coming back. He's, he's, he'll be here soon. And, and I expect him to come back tonight. And you, you might say, well, that'd be good. And we can all go home, 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 right? But uh, that's something that it's, that it's a reality. That's the truth in our lives. Now, as I just mentioned, Peter, he's exhorting the believers and he's building off of verse 13. As we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, in which uh, righteousness dwells. And, and the encouragement here is in, this, the, the, in three areas here in verses 14, 15, and 16. Uh, they are not all encompassing, but 
it gives us a good idea of, or a general idea of what the life of a believer looks like when he or she is looking forward to the return of Christ and, and everything that that means. So the first thing that he brings up here in verse 14, he, he tells me, you know, abide, abide in Christ. Verse 14 says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. The word therefore means moreover or on top of that. And it points back to verse uh, verses 11 to 13. And so here in verse 14, it is it is a continuation of the same subject, but he gives priority to the point that he's trying to make here. Uh, He then reminds them of their status which he's done before in the letter. If you get a chance tonight, read through, uh, read through First and Second Peter. Pretty short stuff. There, he says they, he calls them beloved. You are. They says beloved. The word is agapitos. It's a term of endearment, but it is it is reserved only to those who are uh, able to enjoy the love of God uh, because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right? We know that God loves the world, and so He sent His Son. John three sixteen tells us that. But he loves the world, but those who do not have Christ as Lord and Savior cannot enjoy that love that you and I have as a personal, in a personal relationship with Christ. And so, if you're a Christian, you're a beloved. Or beloved, whichever way you want to say it. If you're not a Christian, then you're not a beloved. God loves you. So what do you do? Well, you, you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You ask him to forgive your sins. You recognize that you're a sinner and your sins separate you from God. You ask for the forgiveness of those sins. To, to give you new life, he does that. Now you can enjoy that personal relationship with Christ. You can enjoy the love of God in your life. And now that you also, you're a Christian, you live for him, you abide in Christ, as Peter exhorts the believers in this letter. And we see that the context is the previous verses, right? Even as Peter is still speaking about the future, there's also a, a, a certain expectation in this phrase that comes next. He says, looking forward to these things. It means to be expectant of these things, not only in thought, but in, 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 in a way that we, we, we live our life in a practical sense, uh, as living our lives with the expectation of this, which will happen because the Lord is coming back. The, 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 uh, the false teachers say, well, you know, you guys have been saying this for a long time. He hasn't come back. And so maybe he's not coming back. He said, no, no, he is coming back. And so we need to live with that expectation and, and therefore should affect how we live our lives. It's not that we just keep this future in our minds. We, we should, but there is also an actual effect that it has in our lives. And it is evident by our character and shows up in holiness and godliness. And he brings that up in verse 11 of chapter 3, too. These things should be evident in our lives. You know, when you look forward to something... With, with great anticipation. Um, it, it affects your life, right? I have, I have a little one. I have two. One is eight years old. And if we're going to Disneyland or if we're going anywhere outside the front door, there is this expectation of what's to come. It doesn't matter. We can be going to Costco. And because they're free samples... There is, when are we going? Are we going now? Are we going now? Are we going now? And, and if she could, she would make it happen. And, and she can't wait for that to take place. And so that's the idea. You, you know, you can't sleep. You can't wait. You want it so badly that if you could, you would make it happen. Which is kind of the idea of what Peter gives us in verse 12 when he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of Christ. That word hastening is the word spudo. Yeah, we get the word speed. We get the word speedos from it, too. It means to urge, to eagerly wait. Now, you and I, we cannot make the second coming happen. Okay? Just let us make that clear. We, we can't do that. But, and we know that, but Peter's saying that we should be living in a way as if we could, as if we actually, as if, if the soon return depended on us, if his, if his coming depended on us. Uh, sort of reminds me, and I shared with the, with this with the key, the kids a couple of weeks ago. You know, you're watching a, 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 a sport, or, or especially if you're sitting watching a game with somebody that's totally into it, and there there is a play happening, and that person it's going through the moves of the guy that's running the ball, or and like like they're affecting the player's moves, and they're just totally into. It. You're like, 
you know that doesn't mean anything, right? And, and, and they'll do all that and they'll put, they'll put lucky socks on, whatever it is, just in order to make something happen in the game. And wouldn't it be an awesome thing if we will be so utterly involved and overwhelmed in the will of God that our lives will be affected in that way too when it comes to our relationship with God? Because we do that with other things, right? He says these things. That goes back to verse 13. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what will take place after the day of the Lord, after the tribulation, the great tribulation, the white throne judgment, and then these things. And it's the promise of a second coming, which is what the false witness, uh, false teachers, sorry, were denying. And also that's what you and I should make sure we don't neglect. And not only that, but have it affect our Christianity. How should it affect our lives? How should it affect our walk with the Lord? Look at uh, the rest of verse 14 there. It says, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. There is, there is a, a, an obligation on my part in my relationship with Christ. That is where the abiding comes in. I need to be diligent to be find, found by, find by him in peace without spot and blameless. The, the phrase diligent is actually spudasa. It, it means to make haste. And it comes from the root word of the word hastening that we just looked at. And again, it means to, to exert oneself to action constantly. This is an ongoing thing. It's not like I'm, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus today, but tomorrow I, I got a game or tomorrow I, no, this is an ongoing thing in our lives. This is constant. It is used to cause spiritual growth in the life of the believer. Uh, earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says, But also for this very reason, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that we are to do all that we can continually to show what we say we believe. It has to be evident in my life. It has to show. It's not just that, yeah, I tell people, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, let's see it. There has to be, and there has to be a growth and development in my life. There has to be a constant growth in my life. And we have no option. Peter writes this as, as an imperative command. This is not a suggestion. This is something that if I truly want to represent Christ, we have to then be continually exerting ourselves. We have to be continually persevering. It's not an option. This is what we ought to do. What are we to be diligent about? It's just to be found by him in peace. That him points to Jesus. Found by him, by Christ in peace. And, and the peace comes from the assurance of eternal life. My state, in, I'm saved. I have that peace. I know where I'm going. I know who has me. I know who I belong to. I'm living in obedience to Christ. So when the Lord comes back, I'm walking with him. When the Lord comes back, how will he find you? When the Lord returns, how will he find you? Will you be living with the assurance of your salvation because you abide in Christ? You know Jesus, you walk in obedience, you have nothing to worry. You know, through the Bible, we are assured of our eternity in heaven if we have Christ as Lord and Savior. But we're also assured of the opposite if we don't. And so if we're playing games, there's going to be a certain uncertainty. You drive and you obey the laws and... You're a good driver and have nothing. You haven't been doing anything illegal. You have nothing to worry about. And that police car comes behind you, maybe for a split second, because we've all done something. But let's say you've had a perfect month. Okay, a perfect week. Okay, today was good. And you have, you, you know, you stopped at the stop sign. You waited that, that second or two. Uh, here, I'm... I'm I'm failing this. Um, and, and you look both ways and you go through and the police cars come behind you. I have my eight-year-old in the back seat. The back windows are tinted. I'm in the carpool. They can't see her there. And sometimes I see that highway patrol. I'm thinking, pull me over. I'm not, I'm not breaking the law. I'm, I have no issues. And people look at me like, he's by himself. No, I got a little one. She just, she's too, too short. You can't see over the you got nothing to worry about. You, 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 can, you even go, stop me, go ahead. 
I got nothing to hide. But if you've been driving recklessly, you're not coming to full stop at signs. And you know it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Mr. Policeman. You're like, oh. You start going, okay, what did I do? Did I stop? Did I not? Oh. And he, he stays behind you. And you turn. And he turns. He's just going the same direction you're going. He's not going to, but, but you start going. And you're, why? Because you haven't, you haven't been living right. You haven't been driving right. You walk with God in obedience. You don't play games. You got nothing to worry about. There's no fear. There's, there's no doubt. You know who has you and, and, and who you're holding on to, right? There's safety in that. There's peace in that. The same way a little kid holds on to his dad's hands or her dad's hands. There is security in that. But the reality is that that's holding on to the kid. Still, that kid has to put the hand there. If you ever seen a mom trying to struggle with a kid crossing the street, and he's like, no, by myself. No, no, you grab the hand because there's safety in that. My personal responsibility in maintaining my relationship with, with Christ means to be without spot and blameless. Uh, these two words point back to the Old Testament sacrifice. The lamb was to be without spot and blameless, the offering. It was the requirement for the lamb used to protect the Israelites from death during the last plague in Egypt as they painted the doorposts of the houses with blood, right? It says in Ephesians, I mean, it's Exodus um, 12, 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. And all these things also pointed to, ultimately, to Christ. John the Baptist, he saw Jesus there on the, on the side of the Jordan, and he pointed and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you say lamb, they understood, spoke of the lamb that was going to be sacrificed with a spot, without blemish. But he was pointing to Jesus in, in John chapter 1, verse 29. So you and I, uh, as believers, are to be without spot. The word spot means free from censure, free, uh, irreproachable of, of any acquired defect, both physical and moral. The word is used to, two other times when dealing with our lives before God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, verse 14 says that you keep this commandment with a spot, blameless, unto our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. So it points to the same thing. The Lord's coming back. Make sure that you walk in right before the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It is used for Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, still in connection with uh, to our lives before him. In, in the first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with, your corrupt, uh, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were not purchased with just, it was the blood of Christ. We are to be blameless without spot. You couldn't bring a lamb that had a blemish back then. The same goes for us. As a believer, you know, how are we presenting ourselves before God? Now, I understand that we cannot of ourselves uh, make ourselves spotless. Right? You can try, but it's not going to work because we live in a sinful world and we have a, a still a sinful nature. The one who makes us right is God. The one who makes us spotless is him. The one who makes us pure is him. He gives us his righteousness. But at the same time, I need to keep myself as much as possible from the filth of this world. You know? One thing is to walk through, you know, a, a, uh, a garbage dump. And you, you try to keep clean and, you know, you might get your feet dirty and your shoes and maybe... You know, past your ankles. Another thing is just to roll around in it and come out the other end in your cover. And a lot of Christians live like that. Yeah, you're walking in this world, you're going to get dirty sometimes. But it's a different thing that you go and use it as a swimming pool. Dive head in. What are we bringing to the Lord? Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you, priest, who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he, be, would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? 
The phrase without blame means without rebuke or without the possibility of being blamed above reproach. We need to make sure that there is nothing that could be brought against us. Not because we hide it well. Because we're good at that sometimes. Oh, no, nobody knows. Because God sees. He sees. He knows that he knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in my life. He, he sees. And he goes, oh, you're not getting away with this. So not because we hide it well, but because there is no evidence. Because there was never any evidence. So we strive to live about reproach. And there are practical steps to that, right? That we can and we can and should take those steps in our lives. And, and common sense things, common sense things, you know, how we present ourselves, the modesty in our life, the things that we allow in our lives, the things that we look at, the things that we listen to, the things that we, you know, that, that we even the things that we read. And we know the Lord convicts us of those things. Say, hey, because once it gets in here, it's in here. There's things that pop up sometimes from 30 years ago. They're in the back of my head. I'm like, I thought it wasn't now. And it's your flesh. The last thing I want to do is add to it. The word is found one other time in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Actually, in verse 15, it says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. And look what he says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you're in the midst of that, but you can, you can be without fault, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain nor labor in vain. This is where you live, and you're in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse generation, but you may, you may be, become blameless and harmless. It would just the opposite of what the false teachers have become. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, it says that, that they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. This is what they become among you. Now, again, we're not perfect, and, and we do at times mess up. And, and for that, you know, we have an advocate, right? First John tells us that, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when I realize I've sinned, I messed up, I confess, I come to the Lord, I confess and receive the forgiveness. Now, it doesn't mean that it's like, oh, great, then it's like, I'll just go do that. I remember talking to someone once, I was like, the way you're going, it's going to, you're, you're living in sin. I know, I know, but you know, I'll, I'll repent. When I'm done sinning, I'll go and repent. I'm like, you might never make it. If that's how we live, making excuses for our sin, be careful. Colossians 1, 21 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Question is, will he be able to present us wholly blameless and above reproach? Only in Christ. Only in him, if we abide in him. Right? As, as John, uh, Jesus mentions in John 15, says the branch is attached to the vine because apart from it, it can't produce any fruit. It's dead. And I, I joke with my wife all the time, you know, if, when I bring her flowers, it's like, you know, I brought you a dead plant, right? Because it's, it, it, it's been cut off from the, from, the, from the actual plant. But she likes them still. The trees across the street, they're all dead. Every single one of those $100 trees. Buy a fake tree. Uh, <laughs> Peter continues in verse 15. Is and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to Christ. So no, while while we abide in Christ, what do we do? We're abiding Christ. We're here. The Lord's coming back. How do we spend our time? We tell people about Jesus. We preach salvation. That's what we do, right? He says, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. You and I have the good news of the gospel. We have that message in us that we that could save people from their sins. We tell people about Christ. They come to know him. 
Their sins are forgiven. They have eternal life. And we don't know how much time we have. Or it could come back for his church at any moment. And when that happens, tribulation begins, the day of the Lord. And those left behind will go through probably the most terrible, actually, they will go through the most terrible time that's ever been seen and experienced in the history of the world. And sure, people will get saved during the tribulation. There's the tribulation saints. But under what? Under great, terrible tribulation and even the sentence of death. Someone once said, um, I remember hearing this, I, I don't know who said it, but that during the tribulation, a person has less than 50% chance of survival. Is that true? Those are bad odds. I'm not, I don't bet, but it doesn't look like a good thing. It is important then that you and I take advantage of the time we have and do that which we have been commanded to do, that which we've been commissioned to do, right? Jesus tells, told his disciples in Mark 16, 15, says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the last thing he told them. Right before he ascended, he could have given them a list. Of, Listen, I'm coming back. But before I come back, here's a list. Check it twice, whatever you need to do. He didn't. He says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and preach the gospel. I mean, just that should keep us busy for a long, long time. Peter says, consider here in verse 15. The word means to, to take into account, to judge for yourself, to think. You don't like doing that. In other words, consider the information that you have. Think about it. Understand it. And then proceed accordingly. Which it's, 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 it's wise to do, right? Your Christian, your, your, Christian, your Christian walk is not just some, some mindless going through the motions faith. It's not. It, it is a rational faith. It is a thought-provoking faith. It is a thought-demanding faith. Uh, it will require your intellect, of course, under the empowerment and direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, that is not the case with a lot of Christians who, after they get saved, they get relaxed in their assurance of eternal life and and they stop being mindful of things like that. They just go through the motions, especially as we get older. I've been going to church. I read my Bible so many times. I got this. Famous last words. And, and, and we get into some sort of mindless monotony. You know, they come to church. Same, same service, same chair, same side of the sanctuary. We are creatures of habit. We serve in that one area of ministry that we're comfortable in because we feel, we feel called to it. I, I'm, you know, if you feel called, that's fine. We read our Bibles, we pray, rinse, and repeat. And, and it, same thing happens. And, and there is no challenge, there is no growth, there is no opportunity for God to show himself in, in our lives. And I tell you that if you are walking with the Lord, and again, for lack of better words, I hate that, sold out for Christ. I don't know what that means, but uh, there will be a messy side to your Christianity. You can step on people's toes, and, and people might not just be happy with you. You preach the gospel, and people are going to look at you kind of sideways. It's not, a, it's not gonna, going to be without trouble. I, I promise that. The word consider in its, in its different forms is, is used several times by Peter and is also used by Paul and in reference to Jesus. Uh, in Philippians 3, 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, but then he says, but what things were, uh, were gained to me, these have counted loss. The word counted is the same thing, same word here for consider. I consider them lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I, I also count, consider all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. There is that word again. They count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I, may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul considered his life in what he had attained, and he put it against Christ, and he understood, and then he acted accordingly. And Paul was 
just following the footstep of his law, right? Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Have you considered your salvation? Have you considered your salvation and what it means in light of the soon return of Christ? Have you considered that God's timing and his long suffering provides an opportunity for sinners to be saved? Peter earlier mentioned in chapter 3, verse 9, says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he brings it up again here in verse 15. He says that the long suffering, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. The word long suffering means patience, endurance, steadfast, steadfast uh, forbearance. So Peter's telling them, in, in light of the soon return of Christ, in contrast to all the lies that these false teachers uh, are saying, denying his return, and everything else that comes with that, as we see God's loving patience toward sinners, because the alternative is what? Damnation? And he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance and be saved. So then you and I have the example of God's loving patience and steadfastness and should be Christ-like toward the non-believer for salvation and, and bring the gospel to them. Why are we here? Why do we engage with people in this world? Why do we th- do the things we do? Why do we, even, why do we come to church? And, and basically it's so that Come to church so we grow, but basically then it's so that we will hear the gospel, the people will hear the gospel and have an opportunity to be saved and for God to be glorified. For the gospel to go out and for God to be glorified. If we get distracted of any, in any way from these two things, the gospel and God's glory, uh, we're missing the point. And, and this, those are the first steps to com- being conformed to this world. We're just heading in that direction. Jesus didn't come to make our lives easy and comfortable and cute so we could look pure and biblical on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, show the world what sort of Facebook Christian we are. I'm not saying don't have Instagram or Facebook, but, or that we can blog about how perfect my life is in Christ. He came and gave his life as a ransom for ours because we were on our way to hell. Because of all the sinners, you and myself included, were the most wretched. I know me. I know me. But he loves you and he loves us so much that he does not want eternity apart from him and for anyone else. So now that we're saved, Peter's saying, consider your life in Christ. Consider what you have been forgiven. Consider the reality of a soon return. Consider the gravity of sin and the lost sinner. Consider how lost you were. Consider that the time is up. Think, think, he says, about what matters. And then let's get off our rear ends and be Christ-like. The word salvation means deliverance from the wrath of God. Salvation means trusting Jesus for one's justification before God. Salvation means that a person's sins are forgiven and never remembered by God. Do the people around you know this? Do they know this? Because you're saved. Do they know what this means? Then Peter says, in case you think I'm the only one, Bringing this up, the rest of 15 says, and also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Peter and Paul were on the same page on this. He's written the same things to you. He says, they believe the same things and understood the same need for the gospel to go out and for men to repent and be saved. Peter went to the Jews. Paul went to the Gentiles. They took opportunity to minister to both if it was there. I mean, if, if a Gentile came, he said, oh, sorry, I'll only come to the the, the Jews, you go talk to find Paul and if you can, and he'll preach. No, they just preached the gospel. They had both considered the biblical truth of Christ and his soon return and agreed on, on what needed to happen. He calls Paul beloved, just as he called them. So Paul is also a member of the family of Christ. He calls him his brother. The word means one who is born from the same womb. Now, they didn't have the same mom, but they were both born again. And Peter calls him 
our beloved brother Paul. He's our brother. There's not many of us here today. But every one of us here are, are related by blood, aren't we? We're brothers and sisters in Christ, redeemed by his blood. And so we should consider how we are to treat one another then. It also tells us then that Peter was in fellowship with Paul. They were one in Christ, and so are we. We know that, that Paul met with Peter when he fled Damascus and went to Jerusalem and, and, and they ministered together. But you know, if, if, you, if you read through, uh, through Acts and then actually Paul brings it up in Galatians, there, there wasn't always smooth sailing. It wasn't always perfect. Yeah, they, were, they had the same love for the Lord and his word and the gospel, but uh, Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face in front of a bunch of people for, for his hypocrisy. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, he didn't pull them aside, listen, just blasted him right there in front of everybody. If you being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles and not as a Jew. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as a Jew? He says, you're being a hypocrite. You're being a hypocrite. Now, apparently, there was no issue with that after the fact. Peter didn't get bent out of shape. He's like, oh, you know, that guy, Paul. You know, I mean, he writes all these things, but, you know, he's kind of harsh. You know, he just yelled at me in front of everybody. You know, he wasn't being very loving. He, he brings him up. He says, hey. Paul says the same things I'm telling you. You see, you've gotten his letters. You can see there's no issue. He didn't, he didn't get bothered. He, they, they focus, he focused on what the Lord had called him to, and that's the preaching of the gospel. And it, it shows their maturity. So it shows Peter's maturity and, and, and the understanding of the priorities. He knew what the Lord had called him to. And, and our pride can get in a way, right, and be a distraction from what matters. Peter was able to then bring up Paul's writings and, and they them, that they themselves had read. And I don't know which ones they were. It doesn't specify whatever was available at the time. But apparently they have made their way to them. Maybe stuff that we don't have. I don't know. There was no, no discrepancy between Peter and Paul's writings. They both agreed with one another. Peter is confirming to them that both him and Paul were of the same mind in the gospel and had the same desire to reach the lost. You and I... We are called to do the same thing. None of us has any special privileges. We've all been called to preach the gospel. Right? Be careful then that, that nothing becomes or nothing becomes a, a distraction or, or it gets in the way of the gospel going on in your life. Especially when you serve with people. You come to church, you serve with people. People are weird. I know this because I'm I'm a person, I'm a people too. And I, I we're weird. And and sometimes we you know. We get on each other and we get all hurt. Get over it. There's, there's, there's bigger things. Confront sin, encourage, rebuke. Get right and, and then get right with God and with others. And if necessary, do it in front of people. Sometimes you got to call people out. It's not something that's very popular today. You know, everybody's very sensitive nowadays. They all want a prize. And, and you can get right with people. You have a problem with somebody, get right. If they, if they don't want to get right, that's their thing. But you continue in what the Lord has called you to. Don't get sidetracked because the enemy loves that. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2, Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. What have, what have you been called to? How are you fulfilling the ministry? One thing's for sure, if the gospel is not going on your, out in your life, in whichever way the Lord's used it, you're not fulfilling the ministry. That, that, that needs to be going on in our lives. 
And now the third and the last thing here in verse 16 is that which comes naturally into the life of a believer when he or she abides in Christ and preaches the gospel. And that is to defend the gospel against false teachings. Right? The Lord's coming back. He wants to be, we want to be ready for that, so we must abide in Christ. As we abide in Christ, the spirit-filled believer will be one who preaches the gospel and is, the, is a witness to those around him. Now, the moment that the gospel goes out is the moment that the counterfeit goes out. That's just the way it works. As long as there is a gospel of Jesus Christ, there will always be a counterfeit. There will always be that which contradicts the word of God and deceives people away from the truth. It's been going on from the beginning. You go all the way to Genesis and the moment that that man had an opportunity to obey the word of God, there was Satan twisting it. And his his servants do the same thing today. The word of God tells us in Genesis 2.16 what? He says to Eve, of every tree, actually he says to both of them, he says to, to the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the garden of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's God's word. What's Satan's version of it? He twists her. He asked her right away, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then she tells, no, we can eat, but that one we can eat or touch it. And he says, you're not going to die. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so right away, he takes our attention away from the word of God. And had her distracted with the fruit and the apparent benefits of this fruit, you're going to be like God. Going, knowing good and evil. Oh, that looks good. And then he minimizes the cost. You're not going to die. Don't worry about it. And he's still doing the same thing today. And a lot of people are distracted from the word of God, from what God has called us to, and, and are focused with apparent benefits of something that is not from the Lord. And a lot of times, sometimes that looks like ministry. And we're distracted from what the Lord is calling us to. So we are to defend the gospel and identify and oppose false teachers. Look at 16. It says, also, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, we don't know exactly what Peter means, but as also in all his epistles, because we don't know what came to them. But apparently Paul wrote and these things made their way to them. But it, it, uh, it could be just whatever was available to them that came from Paul. Some of the letters that we might have. But whatever it was, is these things that we're reading came to the, to the people in Asia Minor that, Paul, that, that Peter was writing to. And it was not just Peter that had brought up the second coming, but also others. Uh, like Paul says, speaking of these things. He talks about, he, he's been, as also in his, in his epistles, speaking of, 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 in them of these things. It's the same word. Uh, what things? The same things that Peter's talking about. The same, the same uh, verse, um, the same phrase that he brings up in verse 14 in reference to the second coming of Christ and our attitude toward it, right? Verse 14 is, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And the, the phrase means these matters. So it is in reference to the context that we're looking at here today, the second coming of Christ, the kingdom age, the judgment, all of it. And also in doing that, Peter qualifies the, the writings of, P, of, of Paul as inspired, just like his. Which also gives us a little bit of an idea of what people thought of the letters, because they've read these. And so they consider them as, as inspired. They consider the, the, what came from the apostles. Uh, and this, you're talking about here, the, the, uh, the middle of the first century. Peter made it clear earlier in the letter. Um, about the inspiration of Scripture, as he's rebuking what these people say. It says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitness of his majesty. For he, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, who, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This, what you have in your life is the inspired word of God, and you can trust it 100%. There's nothing else like it in the world. Peter continues, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, it doesn't, does it mean that Peter did not understand what Paul was talking about, and, and maybe, or, or that Paul was such an superior intellect of a believer that it was hard to keep up with what he was saying? I think that both, and actually, if you think about it, both Peter and Paul had been taught by Jesus, right? Peter before Jesus' death and resurrection, and Paul met him later. They both were apostles and empowered with the same Holy Spirit. Both of them had been moved by the same Holy Spirit to write what you have in front of you today. I think he's saying that some of the things that were revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit were not easy to grasp. But but there's a reason. The word there, hard, means difficult to perceive with the mind. See, the idea is that Paul wrote, as it is with a lot of the things in the Bible, at times it involves a little bit more studying. It involves digging into the word of God. It involves uh, meditating on the passage and, 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 and seriously reading in order to get it. I think one of the things that a lot of Christians do is read the Bible, but not spend time studying it. We just read through it. We get our two, three chapters in the day so that you can read through the Bible in a year. And don't get me wrong, that's great. But we need to dig in. We need to ask questions. We need to ask, you know, the text, you know, who wrote it? Why was why was Peter writing this? What was going on? And a lot of that information, it's it's there in, in, in the text you're looking at in, in the rest of Scripture. But all of all all of the word of God, it is only properly understood by the believer because why? We have the spirit of God, right? He's teaching us. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty six, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Apart from the direction and instruction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we, we look at a passage and we're going to make sense of it the way we want to make sense of it. And it's not what the Lord intended. I remember I wasn't a Christian. It's probably about two years or so before I got saved. And I thought if I read Proverbs, that would make me a better person. I don't know why Proverbs, but I thought this, you know, I've heard somewhere about wisdom. I'm like, who doesn't want that? And I don't even remember the proverb, but I remember I finished reading one and I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read. I thought it was foolishness. But isn't that what the Bible says? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That was me. And that's why Peter says here, the rest of the scenes is which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. These people, they're untaught and they're unstable. That word untaught means ignorant, unlearned, undisciplined in habit or thought, lacking in moral qualities, lacking in, in a balanced judgment. But the idea is that it's not that they did not learn because they were not uh, taught, but they did not want to be instructed. And it wasn't... It wasn't an academic ignorance or an intellectual issue. It was a disregard to the things of God. They just they didn't care about it, either because they were carnal Christians or in this case, you know, the, these, these guys were apostate or, or not born again at all. If you ever get an opportunity to share with an atheist, especially one who is argumentative, and they all are, you will hear them quote scripture because they know you're a Christian. So they go, what about this? And they'll just take it completely out of context. Why? Well, this book, with all his books and, and letters and, and epistles in it, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is alive and only discerned by the elimination of its author. That's why we have the Spirit of God. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the natural mind or the opposite mind cannot understand the word of God. And because it cannot understand it, it will twist it. 
Back to 1 Corinthians 2, we just read verse 14, but in verse 10, he says, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. He is the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been clearly or freely given to us by God. These things we also speak. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit, Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And Peter describes him also as unstable. The, the word means, uh, refers to the conduct of those whose habits are not fully trained and established. If you have a two-year-old toddler, you know what unstable is. Both in the way they walk and sometimes in the fits they throw. They're... they're they're not fully trained and established, right? It, it comes with time. The word is used in reference to new believers who are young in the faith or, or Christians who are carnal. Uh, and because of their immaturity or their carnality or their apostate state, having known Christ and not rejected him, or just because they're just not born again, they, they, Scripture gets taken out of context. The word twist means to to turn away or to torture. These guys pervert or torture the words of Paul. They, they, they do really bad by him. And so the scriptures are taken out of context or just flat out denied. It, it is important for you and I that we read the Bible in context, right? Not just to isolate. You know this. Don't isolate just a passage. Read the whole chapter. Read the chapter before. Read the chapter after. Read through the whole book. Understand, like I said before, and say who wrote it and why they wrote it. Dig into it. Find out. All the information is in here. And then you have the, the Christian and secular authors, and especially when it comes to history, and they, they add to it. And you find out exactly what's going on. And we can put together the piece and understand what's being said. Again, the main principle is all these, is that this is the word of God, and he's the one who teaches us. If you really want to learn and grow, God will direct you. But you need to spend time in this book. If all we do is glance through it and read it uh, for the sake of reading it, then we won't get much. And there will be no growth. There will be no maturity. We'll be unstable in our Christianity. And the end result is that we'll be easily deceived and convinced of all kinds of stuff. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to a God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the end result of these guys, uh, because of the distortion of Paul's Words is their own destruction. And so they're going to be bringing, bringing judgment upon themselves. if they, And so will we if we twist the word of God in any way for any reason and, and deceive others. The word that Peter is using here for destruction means utter destruction. And in the context speaks of eternal separation from God. There is, there is a responsibility that you and I have toward, from the, about the word of God, right? There's a responsibility that we that to make sure that the word of God is not distorted in our lives and even by the way we live our lives. If we're living unbiblically, then are the words being distorted in our lives because we say one thing, but we're doing another. And now Peter is not the only one bringing this warning. Jude says the, something similar. Jude four says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out of the for his for this condemnation ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an interesting thing that Jude says, because he, he says that these false teachers were long ago were marked out, but now they have crept in unnoticed. And you have to ask, you know, what happened? How do they get in? Did we let down our guard? Did we stop looking at the word of God and what it says? So we, when somebody comes with something doesn't match, we, did, we didn't say anything? Have we been conforming to the world for too long? And this is something that is constant. They say, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, not just Paul's writings, but anything that comes from the Lord. And, and as time passes, things will become more evident in this area. You know, Peter and the other apostles have written this almost 2,000 years ago. Things haven't changed. If anything, things have gotten uh, worse. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 13, Paul says that uh, Timothy says, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He's saying stay the course. 
and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures, this is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every work. He says, you know these things. You, you stick to the stuff that you've been taught. You know the word. You know what it says. You know what it teaches. Why? And it tells them later. Because there's going to be those who, who have itching ears. And they will heap out for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the tr- tr- truth and be turned to fables. He's speaking of the future. We're there. Are we abiding in Christ? Are we proclaiming the gospel? Are we standing against false teaching and calling it for what it is? He finishes in verse 17 and 18. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, now that you know, I, I show you this, so now you know this beforehand. He says, Beware, lest you also from, fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him <clears throat> be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And I asked at the beginning of the study, What are you doing with your Christianity? If we're not growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, we're candidate for deception. If we're not growing, we're candidate for deception. Because you look around, you know, little kids are easily deceived. Grown man is a little bit different, you know. Somebody comes to your door and they knock and they can probably convince your kids of pretty much anything unless you train them well. But still, somebody comes knocking on my door. I'm like, what do you want? Unless I know you, I, you're, you're, not, you're in the wrong place. You're not very loving. No. <laughs> but this is for us today because in the church in general, there's less emphasis on the authority of Scripture and more emphasis on the wisdom of the world. And the church looks more like the world and less like what the Bible shows. Which way would, would you go? And I guess it'll depend on what you know and who you know, right? Again, Second Peter chapter 3, we'll finish with this. In verse 11, it says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, because he said he will come back, We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we look to. That's what we live for. While we're here, we're used of God. We don't just, it's like I'm just going to sit and wait for Jesus to come back and I'm just, that's it. My eyes are looking to, we live with that constant in our mind because the Lord's coming back. And because of that, we have our priorities right. The Lord's coming back. What are we doing who are, who are we living for? Because if it's not Christ, then who? And if it's not Christ, then what are your priorities? If it's not Christ, I'm living for self. And if I'm living for self, my priorities are not going to be the gospel. My priorities are not going to be the glory of God. And, and Peter makes it clear, these people are going to come into the church and tell you, don't worry about it. He's not coming. And lies come all the time. Deception is something that Satan does well. Right? So we need to know what the word teaches. We need to understand it. And if you're here today and you know this, then you know what you, the Lord's called you to. But if you don't know, have if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, know that He loves you, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He wants to forgive you, that He wants you to be part of the beloved. And, and he wants to give you the assurance of eternal life in his son. All you have to do is ask him to forgive your sins. And he promises he gives you eternal life. And then you walk with him. You grow in, your, in, in, in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And, and you become a part of the body of Christ here, wherever there is that the Lord takes you. But never stop growing in your relationship with the Lord. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, your mercy, Lord. And we thank you for your word. We thank you 
that you have just put it all for us there. We pray, Lord, that you, you give us the right priorities. Help us to, to be mindful of you, Lord, in everything. Not to get distracted with, with things that come our way. Not to be distracted with this world that is here today and tomorrow is gone. But to, to, looking, to be looking to that day, Lord, when we will see you face to face. And while we live for that day, while we're here, I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified in our lives, Lord. And, Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you here, we pray that you, you speak to their hearts. That they come to repentance, Lord. I ask you to be their Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And we ask things in Jesus' name. Amen.